once again, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Matt, and so is he. Hey, guys. This is High Story, the stoner podcast where I talk with myself about bizarre crimes and other weird shit. This week is no different. As promised last week, I found something weird and creepy to talk about, so it's going to be a fun time today. It is October. Hell yes. Bring on the scary. I want to be scared. Got into my car yesterday morning to go to work, and I shivered a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of chilly. There's now. just a little bit of bite in the air in the mornings now, and I'm all about it. Get us out of swamp season in Texas and into some good reviews. Hey, not awkward segue. Do it up for me <laughs> wherever you can. Five stars, comments, whatever. If you do leave a review or comment anywhere, just uh, tell me what your favorite struggle meal is. I'm running out of ideas. Yeah, we're hungry. One last thing before we get into it today. Small announcement. I am moving forward with a name change for the show. Don't freak out. It's not that big a deal. You, yes, you listening right now, you will not have to do anything apart from being made aware of an upcoming name change, which is happening right now. Reason being, I feel the new title of the show will make much more sense as it'll be more of a direct reflection of what the show actually is. It'll be a little bit easier for me to focus on one topic area, and I have had quite a bit of difficulty myself trying to find High Story on Apple Podcasts. It seems to always get mixed up with a lot of the other history-based shows. Plus, there's another show called Untold High Story, and they've been around much longer than I have, so I'm very excited to tell you that artwork and maybe some new intro music will be coming soon for... My second self and I. We talk about weird crimes. I initially wanted to try to do some history stuff too, but I just can't. It's too boring for me. There are parts of it, there are, there are parts of it that are really interesting to me, but not enough to dedicate an entire podcast to it. At least not now, not on this show. And the format of this show won't change much. I'm still telling you a story in very much the same way, and with the same story time enhancers that we all love some of them not everybody partakes right not a requirement just an accessory let's say that and it's much easier for me to prattle on about horrible people and the things they did for 45 minutes to an hour than which old guy took the throne from the other old guy so keep an eye and ear out for that i'll be sure to make periodic updates to the different socials and you can just keep on doing what you're doing out there and let's see if i can figure out what i'm doing in here today and let's get started shall we my second self and i coming soon we first need to introduce just a couple of people so let's start with heli lork nielsen she was born on july 7th in denmark we're getting the july moment out of the way early this week she spent a majority of her childhood in a small village outside of Copenhagen and was one of the few children that actually enjoyed school. Throughout her early life and into adulthood, Heli remained a warm, thoughtful, caring, happy woman. Someone who would light up any room she walked into. She was also pretty adept at picking up new languages, so she caught on to English and French fairly quickly, as well as being able to understand German, Norwegian, and Swedish. After attending university in England, I think that's how our across-the-pond friends say going to college, Heli pops over to France and finds work as an au pair, which I think is like a maid or a nanny kind of thing. By now, she's in her 20s. She's tall, blonde, beautiful, has a beautiful smile. She would turn heads anywhere she goes, and she wanted to go everywhere. 
When she heard that Capital Airways was hiring, she jumped at the chance to become a flight attendant. She loved exploring new places and would make frequent trips to Africa, often flying out of Franken, often flying out of Frankfurt or Brussels. Frankenfurt. What a life to live so early on! I mentioned last week I want to go more places. One of my flight attendant friends right now is in fucking Greece and sent pictures of the most crystal clear blue water I've ever seen, and I'm so jealous. I want to go more places. Whatever. And now let's talk about a man named Richard Crafts. He was born December 20th, 1937, in New York City. He was the youngest of three with two older sisters. Richard had a pretty good upbringing as well, which makes what happens later so confusing. His father was very successful and even had Richard attend private school for a time, but he wasn't exactly the best candidate, Richard. And I'm not sure what kind of businesses his father ran, but he was a World War I pilot and a football player in his younger days, so I'd say he probably has a pretty, you know, I-can-do-anything approach to whatever he does. So whatever he does do for a living allows him to purchase a very nice home in Darien, Connecticut, in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the whole state. And yeah, that sounds impressive, but the whole state of Connecticut is about the size of the Houston metro area. From the woodlands to... Um, Pearland, there's probably about eight dozen different mega-wealthy neighborhoods. But I checked this town out, and some of the houses for sale today, and cheapest one I found was 695000 for 1,000 square feet. Pretty nice, but not that nice. Connecticut is beautiful, though. Unlike where I live, they get to experience all the seasons and colors of fall instead of here, where it's just hot and green. So Dad's doing pretty well. Richard, on the other hand, he didn't care much for school in the business world. He graduated high school, no honors, just done with that now. Goes to college since we're back in the States now, but loses interest pretty quickly and drops out in 1956, as I'm going to join the Marines instead and go to Korea. Over the course of his career, Richard would become pretty enthralled by the world of aviation. He trained on fixed-wing aircraft and was a certified pilot sometime around 1958, when he was then sent off to Korea and Japan to do... stuff. He flew planes for Air America, which was controlled by the CIA at the time, and went on many missions in the Far East, including Vietnam and Laos. He tooled around doing who knows what until about 1966, and then moves back to the U.S., with his level of experience, Richard has little trouble finding a source of income, and in 1968, he secures a full-time pilot position with Eastern Airlines, who was one of the busiest airlines at the time. Oh, he's not doing too bad right now. Since now Richard has all that comfortable salary and full-time pilot swagger, he's pretty popular among the ladies. He's got that rugged, scruffy look that some women like, and the dark brown hair to match. And he almost always had a woman next to him, when you can be damn sure that it was probably a stewardess. Hell yeah. He dated stewardesses and other airline employees almost exclusively. He even got engaged to one at some point in 1969, and then he meets the other character in our story, Helly Nielsen. Oh, so he gets around. Helly had been navigating through her own aerial career path while she was living out of a motel in Miami, and on May 24th, 1969... She would meet Richard Crafts for the first time. One of her friends would say of Helly, She was far too cautious to have been promiscuous, but she did have a few lovers. 
And despite her own sense of caution, Helly didn't seem to mind Richard's promiscuity, and continued to see him off and on over the years, even while he was having relationships with other women. A pattern that would sadly repeat itself as time goes on. Her friends also didn't like Richard. At all. Some of them were even openly hostile toward him. Maybe they could see what Helly couldn't and didn't trust him. You know, she can have anybody she wants. Why is she with this greasy jerk-off who doesn't comb his hair? In any case, Helly becomes pregnant with Kraft's child in 1975, and by November, they are officially Richard and Hella Kraft's. The following year, Richard purchases a home in Newtown, Connecticut, which isn't for sale today, but it's still there and looks like a pretty nice place now. They would have a total of three children, Christina, Thomas, and Andrew, and they're all about two years apart, I think. Hella would eventually continue her work as a flight attendant with Pan Am, and Richard flew for Eastern Airlines. Combined, they had a yearly income of around $125,000. Not too bad for... What year is this? 1975-76? Pretty damn good money for then. Hella would use her salary to pay for things like the kids and stuff for the kids and an au pair or nanny for the kids. Oh, it was a nanny. Oh, cool. And pretty much anything involving the well-being of the kids was up to Helly. Because Richard, as it turns out, was a massive tightwad and liked to use his newly found wealth as a direct link to his passion. Oh, what is he into? Gun collecting. Not where I thought you were going. He had handguns, shotguns, rifles, crossbows, grenades, revolvers, all the ammo for all those weapons and all the extra shit you have to use to clean them and maintain them. My gun nut friend is going to call me when he hears this and tell me something like, Oh, you know, I actually just use a little bit of WD-40 and a half-cooked sweet potato and my guns never jam. Or, like, just buff it out with possum fur, it's more scratchy. <laughs> His penchant for DIY redneckery is limitless, and I don't know why I gave you such a dumb voice right there. I'm sorry, bro. Fortunately for my friend, I think his wife is just as into guns and other loud shit as he is, but... Unfortunately for Hella, she wasn't nearly as comfortable with Richard's... I wrote passion here, but I think obsession is kind of a better word for it. She wasn't nearly as comfortable with Richard's obsession with weaponry. Although I don't think the literal armory in the master closet or wherever he kept them all was the main issue. That was probably Richard's tendency toward physical violence. Richard is a complete asshole if you haven't come to that conclusion on your own already. Hella was frequently seen in public with bruises on her face. She told one of her friends that she'd never forgive Richard for what he put her through during her first pregnancy. And even during a battle with cancer when Hella took care of Richard and nursed him back to health, he was still an abusive asshole. Did it say what kind of cancer? I think stomach or colon cancer, but I'm not certain. Colon? Like... Asshole cancer? Um, I guess kinda? Do you think it hurts whenever he has to take it? I don't know, but we're moving on from this guy's maybe cancer-sore-riddled sphincter. Then after the kids are born, Richard just dips out periodically for, like, weeks at a time. Wouldn't say where he's going or when he'd be back. Bye! See you later! Adieu, Richard! And whenever he was home, he was buying useless, expensive shit like tractors and mowers and a backhoe that cost $25,000. Yeah, 
And I guess you can do that when you make damn good money as a pilot, but instead choose to force, or more likely beat your wife, into paying for everything around the house, including your kids, and everything they need, including a nanny. Then you could spend all your pilot money on guns and four-wheelers and whatever other random shit you want, because fuck it, she'll pay for it, or else. He should have at least used some of that money to maintain the house. It was constantly in need of updates or repairs to some part of it, but nope. I need a broken down lawnmower right there. Well, he also should have done zero of that other shit. Yeah, I don't think I need to tell anyone out there not to be like Richard. Yeah, don't be a... D Dude, don't, don't bother. It's too obvious anyway. In 1982, Richard starts getting interested in police work, and he becomes an auxiliary officer in Newtown. He does what now? Yeah, he's going to be one of those guys now. The, I'm not a cop, but I only do cop stuff, so I'm basically a cop guy. He obsesses over cop stuff like he does with guns. He might actually be good at that. A very astute observation, and right you are. In 1986, he gets hired on in Southbury. Guess how much he was making? Uh, let's see. Police officer salary in 1986. $7 an hour. What the fuck? Really? Yes. Oh my god, that's so low. In fact, the average weekly income for men and women police officers was $431 in 1986. Dude, that's so low. For the whole week. There's no way I could make that work today. Everything's way too expensive. Goddamn Doritos are like $4 for a half full bag. I know. And we really need to stop with the chips, man. Think of how much money we'd save. Yeah, but they're so tasty. He even bought a 1985 Crown Vic cop car, and he paid for all the training seminars and other expensive cop-related shit out of his own pocket. So that's life at the craft house. Richard would leave unannounced for long periods of time and buy expensive machines and weaponry and abuse his wife when he got back. Then he becomes a cop, and I'm sure that didn't do much to relieve tension in the household. Hella would do anything she could to provide for and protect the kids, and she would soon begin to talk openly about divorce with her friends. She finally had enough of Richard's constant cheating around and disappearances, but she also has a job to do and is still doing everything she can to further her own career. So she does what any reasonable woman would do. She hires her divorce attorney and a private investigator named Keith Mayo to gather evidence of his infidelity. In early summer of 1986, and over the course of the next few months, Keith would turn up quite a bit of stuff that would turn out to be very crucial later on. On November 18th, after returning home from a long trip to Germany, Hella had finally worked up the courage to confront Richard with the divorce. Her P.I. friend had turned up plenty of evidence to move forward with the paperwork. Her friend dropped her off at home just ahead of the massive blizzard en route to cover everything in snow. Ooh, where are those stuffing chips? Would you focus, please? After her friend dropped Hella off at home, she disappears. Gone. Just vanishes. During the night, the power goes out. Richard drives the kids to his sister's house the next morning. He tells the nanny, Dawn Marie Thomas, that Hella had left ahead of him to go to his sister's house in Westport. She later told investigators she thought that it was strange since the overnight blizzard made it very difficult to see the roads. But Don and all the kids piled into Richard's car and he dropped them all off and then left almost immediately. And this was at 6 a.m. Richard had Don and the kids out of the house and on his way to his sister's by 6.30 that day. Ella would have had to have leave much earlier for them to meet her there already. And he didn't even pick them up until 7 p.m. later on that night without mom. Didn't she just get back from Germany? Exactly. She'd be exhausted. Probably just wanted to 
talk to Richard, go to bed, and start putting things together in the morning. I'm not waking up early for anything if I just got back from any flight, let alone Germany. You didn't wake up on time today either, so maybe you're not the best alarm clock. Alright, you got me there. The next night, November 20th, Don asks Richard where Hella is. First, he says he didn't know. I don't know, she's somewhere, she'll turn up, I don't know. Then the next day, November 21st, Don asks him again, Where's Hella? This time, Richard tells her she was visiting her sick mom in Denmark and that she'd be back on the 24th. Changes the story again. Now everybody's eyes are starting to narrow just a little bit more when they see Richard. He's super sus. Her friends hired the same PI she hired to investigate her disappearance, Keith Mayo. Over the next 10 or 11 days or so, Mayo interviews several of Helly's friends and neighbors and discovers that he's told multiple versions of what happened to different people. He told one neighbor she went back to Germany again. On November 21st, when he, was, when he told Dawn about her visiting her hospitalized mother in Denmark, he also told another person that she was vacationing with a different friend in the Canary Islands. That's random. Then on November 29th, another one of Hella's friends, Lena Johansson, somehow obtained Hella's mother's phone number and calls her in Denmark. She's totally fine, in good health, and definitely not in the hospital. So Lena immediately goes to the police station and tells them everything that Hella's mother had just told her and everything I've told you up to this point. She also told them a really interesting piece of information Hella had relayed to them at one point. She said from Hella, quote, if I ever disappear, don't think it was an accident, end quote. And I really wish the number of times I've read that or heard that in these types of cases was a much smaller number than what it actually is. So Keith hears all this, and on December 1st has Helly legally declared missing. And as you might imagine, police have a shitload of questions for this Richard guy. During an interview on December 2nd, he says, he says this when asked about what happened to his wife. Quote, she was happy and showed no signs of being different or upset. Different? What is that? Yeah, I don't know what he means by that. Then he continues saying they slept at home that night, and in the morning the plan was for her, quote, to go to my sister's house in Westport because we had no power due to the storm. I have not seen or heard from my wife since Wednesday, November 19th, 1986. Such an oddly specific way to put that. Don also notified Mayo that Richard had removed a piece of carpet in the master bedroom that had a stain on it, and he claimed it was kerosene. Now it's time to bring him in to take a lie detector test on December 4th. And, of course, he passes. If he's obsessed with cop shit, I'm pretty sure he's also studied up on how to get around a polygraph machine and how those work. That doesn't really set well with everybody. Not quite what they were hoping to get out of the lie detector test, so they bring him in again on December 11th for another interview. Hey, come over here for a minute. I want to try something. Oh, all right. What are we doing? There's a bit of the transcript of this interview, and we're going to read it together. Sounds fun. Why are we doing this, though? Can't you just tell them? Yeah, but this will be more fun, and this story's about to not be fun for a while. All right, cool. Who am I? Mm, you be Richard, and I'll be the investigator. Well, why do I have to be the bad guy? Because I get to make the decisions on this show. Oh, and try out a different voice this time, otherwise it might get confusing. Well, can I be Australian? I'm good at that one. What? No. Okay, never mind. I'll do, I'll do the different voice. You just talk normal, I guess. Right, mate. All right, so Detective Robert Svardzik 
and Lieutenant Michael DeJoseph arrive at the Southbury Police Department where Kraft is working in the night shift. And he conducts this interview at 9.20 p.m. in full uniform. Did you know that your wife hired a private investigator? No. Did you know that the P.I. has documented your relationship with a New Jersey woman? No. Why would your wife tell her friends she was afraid for herself regarding serving you divorce papers and then tell them to check on her if something happened? I cannot imagine her saying this. It is completely out of character for her to say this. On November 18th, when Hella came home, when and why did she leave? Those answers are in my statement. What is the story with your bedroom rug? Apparently you removed it or cut some pieces out of it. Can you explain this to me? All the rugs in the house are being removed and replaced. What was spilled on the rug in your bedroom? Kerosene. Did you cut pieces out of the rug? Yes, two feet at a time. It's easier to remove it that way. What did you do with the rug you took out of the bedroom? Dumped bedroom rug in the Newtown landfill one week ago. It was blue in color. Why have you been telling everyone different things about Hella being missing, like a mother being sick? I didn't want to say my wife was gone, and I did not know where she was. Has Hella received any mail since she has been missing? No. She has gotten no letters since she left. She usually gets about two letters a week. Good job, buddy. And good job on the dry matter-of-fact tone you gave him, too. I don't know what the hell I was going for over there. Ah, uh, you did great. But that's also very telling for investigators that someone whose wife has been missing for over two weeks now shows little to no emotion and is just barely cooperative. Most people who are legitimately worried about someone don't lie about their whereabouts and are much more frantic when it comes to finding the missing person. Richard isn't much help, so instead, police get in touch with the trash collection guys to figure out where all the Newtown trash goes. And it's two hours away to the east in Canterbury, so they drive all the way there to look for literal shreds of potential evidence. That would be like me going from Huntsville to Galveston just to go sift through garbage, which is appropriate because I would have to do that if I went to Galveston anyway, even if I wasn't looking for it, because it's everywhere. Alright, it might not be that bad now, but last time I went, it was not great. Fortunately, though, their efforts pay off, and they somehow find the missing piece of carpet that Richard had cut out. That kerosene stain that he claimed it was looks suspiciously like human blood, so they send it off to Dr. Henry Lee, one of the greatest forensic scientists in the world, and if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he's worked on a ton of high-profile cases. Lacey Peterson, OJ, the JFK assassination, the DC sniper, and some of the earlier investigations for Kaylee Anthony's disappearance. Casey Anthony, by the way, check this out. She says she's paid her penance, no. she's working on an autobiography and a movie no. called As I Was Told, detailing her life, and as of December 2020, she launched a PI firm in Florida. What, is she trying to be a cop now? I have no idea what the fuck she's doing down there, but she's back to party life, and I don't know if she still is, but at one point, she was dating the lead investigator from her case, and get this, she also wants more kids! What? No. 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 <laughs> Holy shit. No, that's a bad idea. All right, we'll get back on track now. That's that's enough Florida trash. We're talking about Connecticut trash. Dr. Lee and his team are poring over the carpet sample for about four hours and revealed 
and results yield no positive results for human blood. Come on, give me something. Gotta catch a break somewhere. So police are trying everything they can to find Hella, and after the rug test bombed out, they looked into Richard's credit card receipts and phone records. Uh-oh. What'd they find? Some pretty interesting shit, turns out. He bought a freezer on November 13th for three seventy-five, which gives me an idea for a birthday present. <laughs> And they also see a rental charge in the same billing cycle for $900 for some kind of machine, but it doesn't say what. He's also got some new bed sheets and a new comforter, and I need to do that for myself soon. And that's going to bring us around to Christmas. Police are desperate for a miracle or some kind of break in the case. Richard's taking the kids on a vacation to Florida for the holidays, so they take this little window of opportunity to execute a search warrant on the house. And they had to be tactful with their explanation of why they needed a warrant, since there was so little physical evidence to go on at this point. Detective Cortiero writes, The affiants have probable cause to believe and do believe that evidence of murder will be found within and upon the residence of... And then it lists off the address. And if you want to know the address, you can go look it up. It's out there, but it doesn't really matter here, so I didn't write it down. And that clever wording was enough to get the judge to issue a search warrant, and search they do. The house was just a complete disaster, too. There's shit everywhere. They opened the door to find... They opened the door to find chairs and couches, Whoa. and the tables are thrown everywhere. Right, I'm th doing the list this, this week, and there's clothes everywhere, too. Shirts, pants, okay, socks, shoes and jackets, and hoodies, and hats. There's, like, trash all over the floor, and then they also find all right, a freezer. Okay, I hear you. I'll try to give you some more airtime, all right? That was great. You know, you've been awfully cooperative this week. What is up with that? I have my moments. You know, you certainly do. Anyway, that freezer was empty. Turns out it was his old freezer, and the new one that he'd purchased earlier... Well, we'll get there in just a little bit, but... They also found a shit ton of guns and around 108 other pieces of total evidence. Hey! Do you want to list off all the weapons and stuff they found? Shit, yeah, I get why you do these now. Evidence included several Smith & Wesson 350... Sometimes I just have to let him do his thing. ...caliber revolvers, Colt Python 38 caliber pistols, Ruber carbine pistols, finished semi-automatic weapons, 12-gauge pump shotguns, Winchester rifles, Beretta handguns with clips, 380 automatic handgun, two hand grenades, Beretta crossbow, Walter PPK handgun, two 9mm semi-automatic handguns, Heckler Koken 45 caliber pistol, over-under style universal shotgun, numerous clips, and an assortment of ammunition. On top of all the guns and ammo they collected... Dr. Henry Lee and his team also rounded up some towels and washcloths along with the bedding from the mattress. They also conducted luminol tests on various surfaces throughout the house which tested positive for blood, including a bloody smear on the side of the bed which was later revealed to be type O blood. So, let's go over everything we found out up until this point. Hella and Richard had been at odds with each other for quite a while. Richard growing more and more violent and abusive and Hella desperately trying to find a way out. Hella formulates a plan to get out of the marriage by hiring a divorce attorney and a private investigator to help find proof of Richard's adultery. On the night of November 18th, she arrives back home from Germany, and that's the last time anyone sees her alive besides Richard. Then we have about two weeks of lies and misdirections from Richard regarding Hella's whereabouts. On December 1st, she's declared as a missing person. December 2nd, they interview Richard for the first time. The 4th is when they administer the polygraph test. December 11th was our little back-and-forth bit from earlier. Let me know what you guys thought of that. Where, uh, then Christmas Day, 
1986 is when they execute the warrant and find all the guns and bloody towels and everything else in the house. So by this point, the police are pretty sure that Hella had been murdered or killed and that Richard probably had something to do with it. They had quite a bit of circumstantial evidence, but Connecticut law at the time required the presence of a body to issue an official death certificate or to be able to charge someone with murder. If only they had some physical evidence or some kind of proof that you could clearly put the rest of this puzzle together with. And they've discovered by now that the $900 charge from earlier was a wood chipper, but that's not enough to go off of. I'm sorry, hold up. Did you say wood chipper? Yes, I did. I don't think I like this. Then on December 30th, detectives Patrick McCafferty and T.K. Brown with Major Crimes they tracked down a man named Joseph Hine, a utility man from Southbury. Joseph Hine also happened to be operating the snowplow on November 20th after the storm hit. He has a job to do, clearing the roads and keeping us all safe. He's a hero! But less for the roads and more for what he tells the detectives here. He arrives at the garage at around 11.30 that night and takes the big road sander truck thing out to cover the major highway. He returns an hour later at 12.30 to grab the snowplow. He drives along Main Street in Southbury for a few hours, just chugging along, moving shit piles of snow, just doing Mr. Plow stuff. Until about 3.30 in the morning, he drives across the intersection of River Road and South Flat Hill Road, in case anyone's out there and you want to go drive by it. He sees a truck parked off the side of the road. And I gotta give this guy some extra credit, because for as bad as the visibility was, he gives a pretty damn good description of this truck. He would describe it as a, quote, U-Haul van, box van, one-to-one ton with dual wheels. The box of the truck was white or off-white square type, and the cab was orange. Nailed it. Spot on, Joseph Hine. Thank you. The lights were off, and the back door thing on the truck was closed, but the weird thing was the wood chipper attached to the back of it. And as he's driving by, he notices a man near the driver's side, so probably the driver... He's waving him on down the road, and then walks off toward the back of the truck. If I saw a random box truck with a wood chipper attached to it, and the guy driving it while I'm work at work at 3.30 in the morning during a blizzard, I'm probably going to remember that. Who the hell is out on the roads right now, and why? A lot of my day at work, and probably yours too, I don't know if anyone else is like this, I don't remember a lot of it. Unless it was something super memorable, a good chunk of the details of my everyday are just gone. That's why we have notes for these. I've had face-to-face conversations with people that I've gotten along with very well, and I've learned their names and many things about them. Fucking can't tell you a thing about them right now. Don't remember that day at all. It just, it disappears. It's all short-term memory. It's just gone. But to see that... If I see a wood chipper anywhere in the middle of the night, I'm probably making a mental note, and especially in a blizzard at 3.30 in the morning. Then to make matters worse, two hours later at 5.30 when he's coming back from the other direction, when he's coming back from the other direction, Joseph sees the same truck and the same wood chipper still there on the side of the road, but the guy's not there. Oh, that's weird. The rolling door was thrown up, and there were wood chips all along the shoulder of the road and inside the truck. I love this. He says, as he's driving by the truck the second time, Joseph says, Huh, that was strange. Why would a person be out here so early and in the middle of a storm? (laughs) Yes, my friend, that is very strange. I love this guy. I wonder if he's still alive. 
He was, what, uh, 37 when this happened? Maybe. He might be alive still. He'd be like 75, but it's possible. Maybe, hopefully he's like one of those new super young looking 75. I know like six or seven people that I just found out are in their 70s, and they could just as easily pass for 50 or 60. It's 70-year-olds are looking good nowadays. Finally, we have a lead. The break we've been waiting for this entire time. Joseph Hines, the hero of our story as far as I'm concerned. He points directives towards Lake Zoar. Did you say directives? Is it Zor or Zoar? Anyone from this area who knows, let me know. I forgot to look it up. It, is it Zor or Zoar? He points them over there in the exact spot where he saw the truck. <laughs> I snuck one in on you. Detective Brown and his team started searching along the shore. They still found several wood chips with some kind of green plastic stuck to them. Some scraps of paper here and there. And As they're sifting through all this, they notice something on one of the scraps of paper. They find an address, oh, but more shit. importantly than that, they also have a name. Uh oh, whose name is it? Miss Hella L. Crass. Boom, bam. Baby bunny. Yes. I think it's probably right here when one of the detectives said, "If he did what I think he did, I'm retiring right now," or something to that effect. I watched a bunch of the YouTube videos on stuff for this, and that line came up a couple of different times. If he did what I think he did. I am not a detective anymore. Something like that. And I would agree. Me too. Because right here seems like a pretty good time to give a little warning. The next part is pretty gross. If you don't like gross, um, I don't know what to tell you. Bear with me for a little while and I'll try to make you laugh later. But the next part, not really very funny. Not a whole lot to work with. So bear with me for a little while. When detectives searched along the shore, they had to sift through leaves and debris and wood chips and dirt and mud and sticks and all kinds of outdoor in the middle of the woods by the lake shit, panning for gold in the dirt, essentially. But their efforts pay off massively, way better than anyone would have anticipated. And the forensics team found 2,660 hairs, strands of blonde hair, 69 slivers of human bone, five drops of human blood, two teeth, a truncated piece of human skull, th less than three ounces of human tissue, I think that means skin, a portion of a finger, one fingernail, and one portion of a toenail. Now police have actual physical evidence to substantiate the murder of Hella. Not looking good for old Richard. You take everything we've talked about so far, now add in the evidence we just found by the river, plus the wood chipper rental, and the freezer he bought on November 13th, then picked up on the 17th, by the way, the day before she got home from Germany, and, oh yeah, there was something really interesting at the bottom of Lake Zor there, and that is a chainsaw! Oh, shit! A chainsaw that also had the serial number scratched off, but it did not appear to have been in the water for very long. Forensics lab restored the serial number pretty easily, E5921616, which was then traced back to Richard. Police now believe Richard killed Hella in the bedroom the early morning of the 19th by first bludgeoning her with an object, most likely one of his giant police flashlights, maybe while she's chaining the sheets or knelt down since there's the blood smear on the side of the bed. Then he carries her body downstairs and puts it in the brand new freezer. 
Then he wakes up Don and the kids and tells them the story about going to his sisters in Westport to drop them off and does his thing. During the day, however, he goes back to the house, gets the new freezer containing Hella's body, drives out to a secluded area in Newtown where I guess he owns some property, used the chainsaw to cut her body up into more manageable pieces, wrapped them in plastic, and put them back in the freezer. Then goes to pick up Don and the kids. The next night, while hero Joseph Hines is out plowing the roads, he spots Richard just as he was about to start feeding pieces through the wood chipper. Can you imagine learning that after the fact? Ugh. Yeah, I remember that night very clearly because I'm gonna notice a wood chipper on the set. He did what the fuck? Oh my god, no. Ugh. Jesus, I can't imagine the chills that would be running through me right then. So this all looks pretty bad, and police finally have enough. On January 11th, 1987, an arrest warrant was issued for Richard Crafts, and around 9 p.m., <laughs> police and about a dozen other investigators surround his house and call inside to order him to come outside and surrender. I love this part. He says, I'm tired, I'll take care of it in the morning. And then he hangs up the phone. What are you talking about, dude? Get out of here. What the shit? Take care of what? So they call him back. Come on, man. We have you surrounded. We know what happened. We're pretty sure we know what happened. Just come out peacefully. And he says, no, I don't want to. And don't call me back. He's like a little kid in there. He doesn't want to come out. Wait, 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 wait. Where are the kids? Kids are inside. They're totally fine, though. Don't worry. Kids are fine. Dickhead Richard, alright, I avoided it for as long as I could. He eventually surrenders around 12.30 after three hours of maybe I will, maybe I won't come out peacefully, and he's finally arrested for the murder of Helicrafts. I am exhausted from this one. I am too, and I'm sure the police are as well, but they get to rest a little bit for the next year while he awaits trial, but it's not over yet. Trial begins in May 1988 and the prosecution has a bit of an uphill battle ahead of them. This is later going to become kind of a big deal, as this was the first murder conviction in the state of Connecticut without an actual body. So they had to prove not only that Helicrafts was murdered, but that Richard had done it, with scant physical evidence, and they did have mountains of circumstantial evidence, but that's a lot harder to secure a conviction and warrant for things like that without physical proof, so... The prosecution presents all the evidence we've gone over so far. Even going a little bit further, they get a pig carcass to put through a similar wood chipper to uh, try to imitate the results that they found by the side of the road, and turns out, yeah, pretty similar results. You put organic material through a machine that's designed for inorganic material, it's going to destroy it pretty easily. But the most damning piece of evidence that they presented at trial was the chainsaw. The lab restored the serial number and linked it back to Richard. But how? He purchased that back in 1981. Well, do you remember our private investigator friend, Keith Mayo, from earlier, who's really making me want to have a sandwich right now? While he was snooping around finding out how much of a cheating scumbag Richard was, he also found an old box of documents and paperwork that had the receipt for the chainsaw in it, complete with his signature, and the serial number E5921616. Boom, bam. One of the two teeth they found also had a crown on it, which forensic odontologists positively identified as belonging to Hella. Richard's defense is the most amazing, airtight, definitely gonna work in court, 
example of a defense I think I've ever heard. He says, now oh, she ran away. What? Dude, how pathetic can you be? She ran away. That's what you're going to go with in court after all of this and all the different other way more detailed lies you told? She ran away. Really? Okay. Seems pretty easy if you're the jury at this point, right? It is for most people. Yes, but you all know that one guy. And the jury, this jury happens to have one. He just doesn't get it. I don't know if he's maybe like a friend or something, but he just wouldn't listen to reason about all the evidence that they're presenting to him. No matter what the other members would say, he just refused to believe any of it. It was like arguing with a child, they said. I don't know why I think he didn't do it. I just think that. Mistrial. Mistrial. We have to have a mistrial. He's that guy. Just, I don't believe him. And on July 15th, after 53 days, 100 witnesses, and over 650 pieces of evidence, the judge is forced to declare mistrial because they can't get this other dipshit to agree. Now who's going to get a weird birthday present? Yeah, I hope he doesn't. And after a second trial, later on in the next year in 89, I guess it takes some time to reorganize all the different moving parts for a trial this size. In September, they restart trial in 89. They get a jury that can actually agree on something this time. But they have to go through the entire proceeding again with all the witnesses and evidence. And then on November 21st, after eight hours of deliberation, they finally vote to find Richard guilty of murdering his wife. And he is sentenced to 50 years in prison. So long, wife-murdering asshole. All right. A little bit of closure. Richard's going away from prison for 50 years, and uh, that'll be that, right? No. As of January 2020, Richard was released from prison 20 years earlier than expected due to good behavior, and is currently, at least as far as I know while I'm writing this, currently living in a halfway house somewhere in Bridgeport. I don't think he's going to be much of a threat to society by now. He's He would be... Damn near 80 by this point, I think, so he's probably just going to wither away there in the halfway house. Which, I, you know what, I think I'm okay with that. His children were taken in by his sister Karen, who lived in Westport shortly after Richard was arrested. I tried to find out what they were up to, but I couldn't find much apart from this story and their names and ages. I couldn't, honestly, I can't tell you which one is the oldest child. They're not listed in the same order anywhere, and I... I don't know, it's hard to find out, and seems like maybe they don't want to be brought up. But I read somewhere that the state gave Richard's pensions to his kids, and while well, it ran out some while ago, it seems like everyone's done everything they can to at least make sure the kids are taken care of, so I really hope they're doing okay. Alright, and now that the main part of the story is over, I'm free to offer up some of my own thoughts on all of this. And when I think about Joseph Hines and what he told the police and what he saw... What happens if Joseph Hines called in sick that day? What if he couldn't make it to work for whatever reason and there was never any witness to seeing Richard with the wood chipper? He damn near got away with a gruesome, brutal murder. If not for Joseph, I think it's very possible that Richard would have found more victims. There have been so many serial killers that shared a similar obsession with law enforcement, and a lot of them even held jobs as police officers, just like Richard. Ed Kemper wanted to be a cop, but he was too tall. He's six foot nine, by the way, if you didn't know. He's an enormous man. Also, if you didn't know, he's still alive and consistently, el consistently eligible for release, but continues to stay right where he is because he knows he'll do it again. He's said that. 
Ted Bundy would also pose as a cop to lure women into his Volkswagen Beetle. Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, used his job as a police officer to commit many of the heinous, many of the heinous acts he was accused of. See also Hillside Stranglers, Kenny Bianchi, Angelo Buono, Gerard Schaefer, Mikhail Popkov, The Werewolf of Angarsk, BTK, and so many others who are completely obsessed with law enforcement. I shudder to think what might have happened if he was never convicted. As far as we know, this is his first and only victim. But then again, who knows? He was almost never home, and his job was to fly all over the country and stay in motels until the next time he flies somewhere else in the country, so who fucking knows what else this guy could have been doing in those places, wherever he was. Whiz? Wherever he was. But that's the end of the story for this week. What the fuck was that? <laughs> That's a crazy-ass story. I can't believe I'd never read that until this week, either. So that's our little intro into Halloween season this month. I've got some way crazier stuff and way grosser shit lined up for the rest of this month for you, too. One of which involves another wood chipper, but that's actually the least disgusting part of that story, amazingly. So stick around for that sometime later this month. As always, don't forget to leave a review and five stars wherever you can. I could use the extra help if you don't mind doing some free stuff. And to everyone who takes a bit of time to listen every week, fucking thank you. I really do mean that. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I say it a lot, but these get more and more fun for me every week. Putting together an audio jigsaw puzzle is quite a bit of fun and pretty satisfying, turns out. So I hope you, I appreciate and enjoy I appreciate that you enjoy whatever I'm doing over here. Fucking nailed it that time. Ahem. What we're doing. Right. We're inseparable. If you have any suggestions for how to improve the show, or I'm more than open to suggestions, feel free to kindly reach out on social media, message me over on the Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram, at FunnyBaldWaiter. I've thrown a lot of stuff at the wall, trying to see what sticks and... I think I've got a pretty good idea of what works and what doesn't work for most of you out there, but I'm always looking for new ways to get better, just improve upon little things that maybe I don't notice because I'm a little too close to it. But that's what I got for you this week, everybody. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week. Stay kind. Stay kind.